My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with Laura Hamilton. Laura Hamilton lives in Waterloo, an Ontario region of more than half a million people, about 100 kilometers southwest of Toronto. Her involvement in climate issues began in 2012 or 2013. She read an article by 350.org's Bill McKibben laying out the grim reality of the crisis more clearly than she had ever seen before, and a little later saw a film screening at her church that did the same thing. The film inspired Hamilton and three friends to start reading more about climate issues, talking with each other about them, and soon enough, taking action together. They decided to approach the issue with a focus on divestment and called themselves Divest Waterloo. The idea of divestment is to get prominent institutions like churches, universities, and museums, as well as individuals, to stop investing in fossil fuel industries. While that may not on its own have a direct financial impact on the companies in question, what it does is mobilize the moral authority of these institutions in a way that changes the political culture and puts pressure on politicians to act with a similar recognition of the harms that fossil fuel industries do. Hamilton and her collaborators also felt that it might be a useful angle for advancing climate-related conversations with more privileged and perhaps more politically conservative people. A lot of their actions in the first few years were public education events of one sort or another. Speakers, panels, films, contests, and so on, all designed to get people talking about divestment and about the climate crisis. Though they had relatively little success in convincing local institutions to divest, they were very successful in building a vibrant network and local popular momentum around the issue. But the focus of their work started to change in about 2015 they became very involved in organizing the big climate march that happened in Toronto in July of that year. Being part of organizing a major street demonstration introduced them to a whole different side of grassroots political work that became a regular part of their repertoire. Moreover, at around the same time, they began to grapple with the reality that you cannot meaningfully or successfully build a climate movement without recognizing that narrowly conceived questions of emissions reduction are inevitably interconnected with broader questions of justice. Not that they had ever ignored such questions, mind you, but they realized that they had to center them. Hamilton said, quote, Climate change is not a technological problem, end quote. She pointed to, quote, an economy that's ill-equipped to deal with land and labor, end quote, and that is fundamentally based on relationships that are, quote, extractive. She continued, quote, Really what climate change is, is it's a relationship problem, and it's our relationship with each other and with the land that is at the core, end quote. This means, at least in part, that the same system is both warming the planet and exploiting and oppressing human beings. The group transitioned into an approach to the climate crisis known as climate justice. More and more of their work came to be done in collaboration and coalition. They were still doing plenty of public education, but covering a broader range of forms and focus. They began to get active in support of the struggle in those years by nearby Chippewas of the Thames First Nation, in opposition to Enbridge's Line 9 fossil fuel pipeline, as well as in other indigenous anti-pipeline struggles. They took part in organizing a number of highly successful local climate marches. 
They have supported Indigenous water walkers, sponsored conversations about allyship, collaborated on a multi-event Indigenous storytelling initiative, hosted events about the Green New Deal, explored connections between militarism and climate change, marched for justice for black lives, and so much more. Today, they're not really organizing as Divest Waterloo anymore, but as part of an incipient, though not yet formalized because of the pandemic, coalition with many other climate groups and justice-focused groups. Last year, this bigger formation convinced all of the municipalities in their region to declare a climate emergency, and now they're pushing these local governments for real action and a commitment to reducing carbon emissions by 50% by 2030 in a way that centers the voices and experiences of marginalized people. I speak with Hamilton about Divest Waterloo and about its journey towards an approach to climate action that is grounded in climate justice. My name is Laura Hamilton, and I've worked in community development and adult literacy for the federal and provincial governments for the last 40 years. And for the last 10 years or so, I've been very engaged in our community, working around raising awareness around the urgent need for climate action, action to address climate change. I have four kids. They're all grown up now, but they have certainly been an inspiration for me to do this work. We're basically hurling towards crossing the threshold of two degrees of warming of the average global temperature. And it doesn't sound like much, but once we cross that threshold, it's a game changer, right? The odds go against us with respect to something called unstoppable climate change or tipping points, which means it gets out of control. And all we can do then is do our best to respond as the crisis unfolds. So it's a crisis because there's just so much suffering that will happen and also because it really is going to change life on Earth. We're entering the sixth mass extinction as a result of this. We're already starting to see species die off at a rate that we haven't seen in, I don't know, the numbers, probably hundreds of millions of years. Then, of course, the people all over the world who have done the least to contribute to this crisis are those who are going to suffer the worst effects of it. It's a social and economic crisis, clearly, but it is really a crisis for life on Earth. Divest Waterloo is a grassroots organization. We're committed to climate justice. We do this work in solidarity with local and national Indigenous land defenders. And we work to create awareness and action on climate change. So initially by initiating and supporting fossil fuel divestment campaigns across our region. And mostly we've been focused on public education events. And we do that work in partnership with environmental and justice groups, trying to build the political will for action and for change. I'm interested in hearing about the ways that your climate work has changed over the time that you've been involved, from that initial divestment focus to its current grounding in climate justice. Start out by telling listeners about the origins of Divest Waterloo. Let's see, it goes back to 2013 when Bill McKibben wrote an article in Rolling Stone magazine called The Terrifying New Mass of Climate Change. Until I had read that and until I had heard about what he was doing, climate change was something that was happening. It was going to happen probably not in my lifetime. You know, global warming is the way people still talked about it. Then it struck me as something that, you know, could be turned around. People would rally. We'd figure it out. So it was reading that and understanding that. And then he came out with a film called Do the Math that was really the launch of 350.org and the divestment campaigns that grew out of that movement. And so it was at church. It was at a United Church. We screened the film and people stuck around afterward to talk about it. And from that group that talked about the impact that the film had on them and, and it was being able to see that really at that point in 15 years, we were going to cross that threshold if we continued on the trajectory that we were on. And that was terrifying. 
And then from that group, there were four of us who were friends and I invited them over for dinner and we decided to talk about how we were feeling and what we could do. And at that point, we came up with this idea to start this organization. So yeah, we were all within 10 years of the same age and so on, different backgrounds. One was a math prof, one's an editor, myself as a public servant, and my other friend had been very engaged in justice work in faith communities and was also doing counseling with folks. So different backgrounds all came together with this notion of how horrible this was and how the rest of the world, at least in our world, wasn't thinking about this or taking it seriously. We felt changed by the experience or the knowledge that we'd had. And then what we started doing was we'd have dinner together once a week and talk about what we needed to do and what that would look like. And divestment struck us as a way to reach people who weren't otherwise talking about climate change, because in that privileged middle-class world, a lot of people are thinking about their investments. And so if we could demonstrate to folks that they could actually stand to lose money if they were invested in fossil fuel stocks and sort of come at the conversation that way. Most people really, at that point anyway, didn't want to engage in conversations about climate change. It wasn't of interest, or so it struck us. So we thought it was a great way to speak with people, particularly people who might be politically conservative, about climate change, because we could come at it through money. What's the logic underlying how divestment is meant to work as a strategy? It's really about getting culturally powerful institutions, so universities, museums. We had this idea that we would work across institutions in our community. And divestment works by these culturally powerful institutions, and same thing with faith communities, taking a moral stand and saying, this is wrong and we can't get behind this and we're going to move our money away from this problem. And so the United Church, for example, moving its endowment or its foundation money out, whatever that would have been, you know, millions of dollars, that's not going to impact the fossil fuel industry, but the public statement that they're doing this will because it shines a light on what's happening. It's moral authority is what it is. The same thing happened with other divestment campaigns in the past. They have a political impact. If enough organizations do it, politicians can't ignore it. What was the group's work like in those early years? The very first event we organized was with faith communities. We tried to reach people where they were, and it kind of went like this. We had someone come in and talk about the science of climate change. And then with the first faith community event that we held, we reached out to the Canadian Food Grains Bank. They're like the broker. So if whatever faith community wants to support emergency relief somewhere, it's the Canadian Food Grains Bank that takes their funds and manages all of that. They had people doing climate policy. So we thought it would be cool to have someone from that organization talk about the impact that climate change is having. So, you know, all of these organizations that were coming to this event were investing in this kind of thing. And then these folks were saying to them, look, here's what we're seeing on the ground. And they had great examples of areas where they were providing support around the world and what was happening to poor farmers and the impact that climate change was having on their work. So then we sort of connected to justice in that way. And we tried to do that all the way along. And then the next thing would be to talk about their money. So then and we'd say, you know, why are you continuing to invest in this problem? And then connect people to the resources that their faith communities could use to support them to move their funds and to talk about the power of the public statement. So we had a bit of a formula where we always try to bring science into it to start there and then sort of meet them where they are and try and find ways to engage them in those conversations. And then always to inviting local municipal climate organizations. So it was really about curating speakers to reach out to people. And the other thing that we did very early on was develop good lists. We'd take time off work and develop just lists of everyone in the community, like every church from all different faiths and so on, so that we could continually reach out to folks to invite them to things. So we just kept trying to grow things and build from one event to the other. 
And again, we always use these opportunities to talk to people about the role that the oil and gas industry in Canada played in creating that culture of climate denial and so on, because that was news to a lot of people too. So we were trying to sort of shine a light on their political influence and therefore the need for people who would object on moral or ethical grounds to what's happening to kind of take them on. When I look back on our website and the events that we were doing, it was sort of every few months, it seems, we did something. So, for example, they had these international divestment days. So February 14th was this international day. It was the first one since we'd organized that we were aware of. It's Valentine's Day. So what we did is we organized a contest and got all kinds of local players involved. And it was a breaking up the fossil fuels love letter contest. So you could write a love letter to renewables or a breakup letter to fossil fuels. And we promoted it widely through all the folks who'd been to our previous couple of events and then also reached out to, you know, schools and other groups in the community. So it helped us to get our word out even further. So we sought opportunities to get word out. We did a lot of work early on about investing, how you can invest. You know, if you're going to move your money, where do you want to put it? And investing in solutions. We found that that was well received. We'd still give the divestment message, but we would focus on the positive side. And the other way we grew it was we piggybacked on things that were already happening. So, for example, early in the game, Ontario was hosting a public consultation on their climate plan. And so what we did is we just seized that. No one really kind of knew about it. And so we just started promoting it far and wide. So it wasn't our event, but we kind of did that expression, let's fill the room. And it worked, totally worked. We went through, again, anybody who's been to any of our events up to that point, and also all of the other climate groups, even the municipally funded climate groups, we would go through their lists of their supporters and of the people on their boards and so on and kind of say, are you going to be there and so on and pass the word around. And then the other thing we did is we compiled lists of all of the faculty that taught in environment at both universities. And that's University of Waterloo and Wilford Laurier University and would share updates with them to share with their students. And some were great and very helpful. So we got all kinds of folks out to these other events, and that helped to grow the movement too. And how able were you to move from these quite successful public education events to getting institutions in the community to actually commit to divestment? Well, we weren't successful at all when it comes to divestment. I realized in hindsight, though, we were successful in so many other areas. I shouldn't say that we weren't successful because each university got campaigns launched. It's really hard to get a university to divest, although I think we're getting close now all these years later with the University of Waterloo. So that conversation is still happening. But I think what we did is we got quite a following. People liked our events. We also baked for our events. I think that has a lot to do with it, too. And we moved into sort of the political organizing marches and so on by 2015. That's where we made a real impact, I think, too and started regular meetings with elected officials. We always came at it through the divestment lens when we would meet with folks, but we just cast a much wider net. How else did the group's activities change as you entered the upsurge in global momentum around climate action that started around 2015 or 2016? For me, it was the Toronto March, July 2015. It was the March for Jobs, Justice and Climate. I was following 350, and they put a call out for people to help organize that march in Toronto. People were interested, so I started going in to that, and I had never done that kind of organizing before, and it was great. I just learned so much. And to me, that was really where the dots were connected across, you know, jobs and justice and climate change. 
for me, what happened was when it came time to, okay, now we're getting into the actual day of organizing, they asked for people from each of the sort of hubs. So there were, you know, anti-poverty folks, there were folks working for racial justice and so on in the faith hub. And I found myself in that hub. And when they said they needed an organization to take the lead, it was right about the time when Harper was going after charities for being political. So the impact on this organizing for this March in Toronto is there wasn't one faith organization that would step up to do that work. So because Divest Waterloo is just the four of us doing the organizing, even though we had lots of people following us, we weren't a nonprofit or anything. So I said I could do it from my kitchen table. I had nothing to lose. And a group called Faith in the Common Good, which is a national interfaith organization focused on sustainability, they said we have your back and we'll connect you with all the right folks. And so then I got in earnest organizing how those groups could come together for the march. And we had a great, huge cohort. And I just learned so much from those connections. And so when I came back to organizing here in Kitchener-Waterloo, I brought that way of thinking with me and those connections and it really changed things for us. So even though we were still organizing events around more sort of pragmatic things, when we organized our own follow-up march in November, we had been working on those connections across sort of justice lines. We made sure that our march was Indigenous-led and the only voices that were heard that day were Indigenous voices, and that was somewhat new to the community. And again, started learning a whole lot about those relationships at that time, too. We got very much behind Mang and Henry, who was leading Chippewas of the Thames in their battle against the reversal of Line 9, and that went through their territory. We just became active in supporting that whole movement, the anti-pipeline stuff and the coalitions against pipelines. That was the first foray into the justice work. What has that looked like in the last few years? What we did then is we tried to just throw our resources and do anything we could behind that movement. We had a People's Injunction Skating Party 350. We're doing this injunction against Trudeau. And so we made a huge banner and did a banner drop. Anyway, we did our best to engage the general public in conversations about pipelines and conversations about Indigenous rights. It was tough then. We learned lots. We ended up hosting an Indigenous allyship event where we coupled climate justice and allyship. That was really helpful learn lots about how to be and what those relationships look like. And that sort of really was when our path changed. And so now what it looks like is it's a lot more intersectional. Right now, we're organizing as part of a broader coalition with all of the grassroots climate groups. We all came together to organize the last big march a year ago, September. That was all built on climate justice. So all of our speakers were focused on that. We had Black Lives Matter speakers and intergenerational speakers. It was Indigenous-led and people speaking directly to climate change and poverty. So that was really the first big event that we had. By big, it was like 5,000 people, which had never happened here. And after that work, we got together to look at how we can build something new, which would be a climate justice coalition, because we were doing this anyway. Every time we met with politicians over the last few years, we would make sure that we had representation from different groups so that we could make that broad case for change. And we decided that we should do this work as a coalition. But then the pandemic happened and we really couldn't do the group organizing to establish the coalition. So we've just been working as a group, but without really working under that banner. Why do you think it's so important to have made that turn to a more coalitional, more intersectional, more explicitly justice-focused approach to addressing the climate crisis? The work that I did, that allyship work, a relationship I had with water walkers and I started supporting the beautiful women who walk the Grand River where they sing and pray for the water. 
I've learned from them. We've done some theater work, and I've had, as I mentioned, that opportunity to learn from Mayingen, who is an elder as well. And I had an opportunity to meet some knowledge keepers and do some work there. And I've really come to understand that climate change is not a technological problem. Its roots are in an economy that's ill-equipped to deal with land and labor. It's an extractive economy, and those relationships are extractive. So really what climate change is, is it's a relationship problem. It's our relationships with each other and with the land that is at the core. And so that's where we have to do the work. And so simply by, you know, asking privileged white folks to move their money, I mean, I still believe that it's a very good tactic to shine a light on the fossil fuel industry and the abhorrent things that they've done over the years to continue to earn profit at the expense of so many other people. It's horrible. It's exactly the same as the tobacco industry. So it was a great tactic and it continues to be, and it allowed us to begin this good work. But really, it's a relationship problem, and that's what we have to look at. And so I think that the intersections with justice just bring that to the fore. One of the challenges that comes up when you're making a case for a justice-focused intersectional approach to climate struggles, and this is analogous to something that happens in lots of different movements, is you run into people who say, well, yes, that's all well and good, but it's urgent that we focus all our energies on reducing emissions, and we can worry about all that other stuff later. How do you push back against that? We did a lot of work around that last year. We invited the Bajimajig storytellers here for a week. And they spent time with all different groups in our community. So they spent time with folks who are part of the funded environmental groups and all the grassroots groups. They spent time with newcomer, newcomer youth. They spent time in a local soup kitchen. They spent time with all different groups in our community. Oh, and arts workers. That was cool, too. And they compiled a devised kind of theater performance at the end that was really focused on our relationships with each other and with the land. And they wove traditional teachings into it. It was just a beautiful week and an amazing performance at the end. And I I just go back to that and I take from their learnings about, you know, nothing exists in isolation and climate change. You can't just focus on climate change. It is too big and too broad and too all-encompassing. And in terms of climate action, if we just turn that switch, we continue to live our lives the way we are now, but somehow make them more sustainable. It's just incongruous. You can't do it. It's the way we're living. We did an Extinction Rebellion action last year where we went into a mall on Black Friday and did some theater and we're chanting things like, you know, the way we do Christmas is killing life on Earth. But it is. And, you know, people don't want to hear it, but they have to step back and understand that the privilege that we have is really on the backs of others, on other humans, obviously, that we've oppressed, maybe not personally, but the systems that we're benefiting from have oppressed, and on the backs of the species that are going extinct based on our extractionist approach to industry. And you sort of explain it like, as long as a dead tree is worth more than a living tree, we're screwed, right? It's a worldview. And so, yeah, you can focus just on climate change, but you have to do it through that lens or you're missing out. And I know it's not what people necessarily want to hear. And people want to know about what they can do personally. And I understand that personal action is a gateway drug, so that's okay. Because no one's going to meet with their MP if they're not recycling. But we do have to take it beyond. So it is challenging. It is challenging to change that narrative. In the context of the current state of climate struggle, so lots of momentum for movements before COVID and some signs of that reviving now, but also lots of inertia and inaction from governments and institutions, where do you find hope? Hope's tricky. I feel hopeful when I'm doing something. And I find hope. It's not that I'm doing it by myself. Hope for me happens when I'm working with other good people toward some kind of good end. Because somewhere we've convinced ourselves that we wouldn't be doing this work if we didn't think it was going to have an impact. So really, it's finding hope through action. I think it would be impossible to be hopeful to look at the situation and not be engaged 
in trying to make change happen. I think that's where people are losing hope. It just seems too big and too impossible. And I've seen with other people when they do engage that positive energy that comes from doing that work, that's where there's hope because you're around other people who are committing their time and energy to those changes. So I see hope there. And I am choosing to believe that there are tipping points. And, you know, in the intersection, there's hope too, because positive change is happening regardless. And it may not be happening with respect to climate change at the speed and on the scale commensurate with the crisis. I totally get that. But as we move forward in that direction, if we can tackle some of the systemic challenges across those justice lines, we filled the streets. We were engaged in rallies and support for Wet'suwet'en land defenders, and we were shutting down streets. So there were an awful lot of people coming out and engaging. And so as more people wake up, there's hope. What's coming up for Divest Waterloo, or I guess more appropriately for the broader coalition that's the focus of your energy these days? So right now, it's very much on the 50 by 30. In the midst of all of the organizing last September, we went to each municipal council, you know, found allies, did the work, and it resulted in each municipal council in our region declaring a climate emergency. So we're building on that, on this 50 by 30 campaign. Our municipality is about to set their 10-year targets for their own greenhouse gas emission reduction. And so the 50 by 30 campaign is to ask them to commit to a target of 50% reduction by 2030. And while they're doing that, to focus on equity. And we're looking at different pillars and across various justice intersections. That's really the focus of our work through this fall. I'm sure there'll be something. We never really know what's coming because we're constantly evolving and responding to what's happening. But that's the focus right now. And it is, again, this broad coalition. We're doing it in partnership with people who are seeking justice around housing, around food security, food sovereignty, even more so with Indigenous land back, land defenders. We're helping, I hope, to amplify voices that need amplifying only because, you know, the world has just been looking the other way. So that's really where we are right now with the 50 by 30 campaign is broadening the scope and raising those voices. And that's going to take up all of our time, I think, probably until like the end of January. I think they're setting their targets January, February. So that's going to be our effort coming at it from a variety of ways, you know, through business, through cultural organizations. We're working with the museum. We're working with the architecture students again. We're starting to work reaching out to businesses. So we're trying to get broader public support and finding out that it's there, which is really encouraging. And beyond that, I'm not sure where it will go after that. Hopefully the pandemic will wind down and we can get back to organizing the coalition to take this work forward. And I have to tell you, this whole thing, it's all about transformation. And that's what we're experiencing. Like we started this work when we first sort of understood the math of climate change. There's no going back. Once you know that this is what's happening with the planet, it kind of wrecks you for anything else. That lens is just with you. That's the first sort of transformation. And then from that, there was this transformation around justice and around, you know, in Canada, what that means, the fundamental sort of justice relationship is how we got this land and how we set this country up understanding the relationship piece of it, a reciprocal kind of worldview, and where our place is in that has just been the biggest transformation. You have been listening to my interview with Laura Hamilton. Though her most recent grassroots political work has not really been done under this banner, she got her start as part of Divest Waterloo, and you can learn more about them at divestwaterloo.ca. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show.
On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. 